0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, we have Joel Wolfe on the show, and we'll be talking about his terrific new book, Autos and Progress, The Brazilian Search for Modernity, Brazil, the Country of the Future, and... Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host, each week, we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, we have Joel Wolfe on the show, and we'll be talking about his terrific new book, Autos and Progress, The Brazilian Search for Modernity, Brazil, the country of the future and always will be. How many times have you heard that? I've heard it so many times, I can't count them. And it certainly isn't very kind to the Brazilians, for uh, they did attempt to and are attempting to create a Vibrant modern industrial democracy. And one of the ways that they have traditionally done this was through automobiles. There are some striking parallels between Brazil and the United States. Both are very large countries that hived off European empires, both suffered the legacy of slavery, both had vast interiors that the elite felt needed to be settled, and both were car crazy. These parallels make Joel's book a fascinating read for Americans, but I'm sure a fascinating read for almost everybody. Uh, the Brazilians did a pretty good job with this actually as you'll read in the book and here in the interview. So without further ado, here it is. Hi Joel. Hi Marshall. How are you today? I'm well. That's good. Great you're in here, yeah. you're in, you're in Amherst, Massachusetts, is that
1: right? Uh- I am in Amherst, where it is currently about 60 degrees, so we're very 60
0: happy. degrees. It's, it's almost the same thing here in Iowa. We're having a, a beautiful day, although it's supposed to snow this weekend. Ah, sorry. Yeah, no, it's, it's bad. And also, we're going to have some floods, I think. the um, Yeah, the rivers are rising here in Iowa. They always rise in the spring. It's kind of a bad thing. But you thing.
1: recovered from all that, right? Yeah, well, we
0: have recovered, and now we're going back into it, I'm sorry to say. Uh, so I should tell our listeners that we are... Pleased to be talking to Joel Wolf today, and we'll be discussing his terrific new book, Autos in Progress, The Brazilian Search for Modernity. I was telling him in the pre-interview that uh, there's really some quite remarkable parallels between American history and Brazilian history, which were very eye-opening to me because I knew nothing about Brazilian history beyond the fact that they are a a, uh – World dominating soccer power. So I'll wear my ignorance right in my sleeve, Joel. And I'm, I'm never afraid to say I don't know something, um, at least when I'm not around my kids. Uh, so let me let me ask you to begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself.
1: Right. And I've I've listened to lots of these podcasts, which are terrific. So I can I can add that I'm yet another historian uh, raised in New Jersey. (laughs) Uh, That's right. Not Metuchen, though. No, no. No. (laughs) Bucolic South Jersey. (laughs) Okay, Uh, Cherry Hill, New Jersey, outside Philadelphia, diehard Phillies fan. Uh, I went to college, uh, undergrad at Georgetown, where I was in the School of Foreign Service. And I'm old enough that I went in when Carter was president. and I came out when Reagan was president. Uh, having studied Latin America and decided that it was time to stay away from the U.S. government, uh, and and went off to New Mexico to do a master's in Latin American studies, which was fabulous. And there, decided that I really liked history. Um, worked with a guy named Ed Lewin, who died probably 10, 15 years ago. And they sent me off to Wisconsin to do my Ph.D., where I had just a fabulous experience. I worked. My advisor was a guy named Tom Skidmore, who's retired now. And um, the two other Latin Americans I work with were Steve Stern and Clarence M. Mallon and was really honored to work with a woman named Jean Boydston in U.S. women's history who just died, sadly, and Linda Gordon, who just won the Bancroft earlier today. Oh, yeah, uh, no, about that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I just loved Wisconsin and, and became a Brazilianist there and, uh, and was really lucky. I went into graduate school in the mid-'80s and was told there were no jobs, and so no one went into graduate school. So when I was finishing up in the late-'80s, Uh, And there were jobs. I had no competition. (laughs) And and so um, despite not having a dissertation, I got a good job at at Williams College and got tenure there and published my book and immediately left for Rice University because uh, it was just very isolated up in the far western, northwestern corner of New England. And then uh, now I'm back in Massachusetts, which I really do love New England. Uh And I'm at UMass and just got the second book out.
0: That's terrific. Well, congratulations on all that. No, it sounds like a, a, you know, all historical careers are interesting. I've not not heard one that that isn't. Well, actually, there is one I know that wasn't terribly interesting, but I'm not going to go into it. Um, So uh, tell us how you came to write this book.
1: Yeah. Um I, I really was inspired to write this book by my experiences teaching. Um my first book, which is you know, my dissertation, is a, you know, narrowly construed study of industrial workers in Sao Paulo, uh, the largest city in the southern hemisphere. And um I noticed in you know, teaching, you know, very bright undergrads, particularly at Williams and Rice where the ideas for this book came up, that that everyone had a broad understanding of Mexico. But they had, and and Mexico is really easy in some ways because independence starts in in 1810, and the revolution begins in 1910, and there's nice brackets. And everyone was confused by Brazil. People said, like, I I know they play good soccer, you know. (laughs) Um, And so there really was a sort of conversation of the of the nation. And I thought, well, I have tenure now, and I can write a bigger book. And I can I don't wanna write what we used to deride at Wisconsin as sort of son of dissertation, you know, could continue, <laughs> continue the first book. And um and so I was asking a lot of questions that came out of student questions and student papers and I also was answering my own criticism of my first book. My first book was kind of a bomb in the labor historiography because I argued that women were the real vanguard of the labor movement. Mm-hmm. And a lot of traditional labor historians challenged this, and they and they I didn't think they did a very good job challenging it because the book had some glaring weaknesses, <laughs> and, the, the, and they missed them. They were so angry about the gender. Uh, and so I really don't, I don't deal with race, you know, how can a historian of Brazil not deal with race? Well, you know, read my first book and, um, and, you know, cause I'm dealing with immigrant communities and then, you know, I don't really deal with ideology very well in the book. And so I thought, well, you know, in addressing the nation, I would look at how a group of people tried to recast the nation in the image essentially of Sao Paulo and how they then had to deal with issues like race and ideology. And um, and so it grew out of my own critique of my first book, as well as students' sense of kind of you know how they were perplexed by Brazil because they brought the kind of notion of Mexico and Central America and the Caribbean to South America, and then were confused by it. So that those were all the ideas that that kind of percolated into it.
0: Mm-hmm. I see. You don't have a uh, a background in. Automobiles or anything like that. You no, weren't, a, you, weren't really a, you weren't you a, weren't a grease head or what, what they call no. it a uh, gearhead. D- yeah, gearhead. gearhead. I, yeah, no.
1: Yeah, no. I drive a Honda because you don't have to be. You know. If yeah, it, no, that's gonna, right. It, yeah, it's going to go forever.
0: It's um, funny. It's funny you mentioned that about about Hondas and Toyotas because that's really what broke the back of the American auto industry is that the Japanese built cars that didn't break.
1: Yeah, and, and what that? Right, it destroyed the forward and backward linkages of the system. I, yeah. I, I, the the thing that kind of fascinated me when I started to think about it, too, was that the the Model T and the Chevy, you know, were the, the Civic and the Corolla of the day. Oh, yeah. oh and, yeah. And they were just hardy, and they were inexpensive. Yeah. And, you know, they kind of solved this question, and, and they, you know, they became commodities. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And that's how, you know, a place like Brazil started manufacturing. Mm-hmm. So tell us
0: exactly how... Uh, The um, automobile ism um, came to Brazil.
1: Yeah, well, see, one of the arguments in the book is that it comes to Brazil uh, as a very logical thing, uh, as you know, a kind of yet another import by coffee barons. Right, really wealthy, I mean some sugar barons, but you know, Brazil in the late nineteenth century is producing ninety percent of the world's coffee. And so you have this fabulous wealth. And these guys are, you know, tremendous proponents of classic economic liberalism. We're gonna make the coffee and with the, the, the pound sterling and dollar and the Deutsche Marks we bring in, we're gonna buy manufactured goods from Europe and later the United States, but primarily Europe. And it's just a, a symbol of our wealth and a toy and it's something that you you, know, you add um, further prestige by importing a European chauffeur. Uh, and there's even a, a vignette in the book that you probably remember where you know one guy in the south of Brazil, in Porto Alegre, imports a car, and then everyone realizes no one knows how to start. <laughs> yeah. And they have to, they have to put it on a, a cart and bring it yeah. to the jail because there's, a, there's yeah. an Italian in jail who knows yeah. how to work a car. Right. Um, so it, it really is just this, this sort of a, a badge of being an elite and identifying with European elites, but soon uh, the sons of these guys start driving around, and they openly call themselves, in in English, they call themselves sportsmen. They use the English word. And they realize that this extreme liberal model, uh, which has built railroads from coffee areas and sugar areas to ports, has not tied the nation together in any way. And so the, the, you know, a product of liberalism ends up bringing a critique of liberalism, Mm -hmm. um, which is that, geez, the nation isn't connected. And to get from one point in the interior to another is almost impossible, where it's pretty easy to get from one point in the interior to a port you know, to Europe or to the United States, mm-hmm. and there's another vignette in the book, these a you know, both from the first chapter, where a, a Frenchman comes and, as a driving stunt, decides to drive between Rio and Sao Paulo, which my Brazilian friends do in about four and a half hours now. Mm-hmm. I do it about five hours um, on a superhighway, <laughs> and, um, and, you know, it took him 34 days, and, and the idea that you would travel between the national capital... And you know the, the the growing city, which you know ten years later is going to be bigger and richer, Sao Paulo, and it takes thirty four days in mm-hmm. uh, a car. Just tells you that the extreme kind of federated nation of the uh, uh, no, uh, nature of the nation is really an impediment to um, growth. Mm-hmm. And you know, and these elites in Sao Paulo and in Rio, you know, are always looking to the future. So mm-hmm. the name of the book is Autos in Progress, and it's a play on the flag, the yeah. national s- slogan, which is. Order in progress, order and do they progress, think well, yeah. we've got some order, but we don't have any progress.
0: Yeah, right, exactly. So, um, let me take a step back and ask you to do something for uh, me and for the listeners. Okay. Give us a, a give us a postcard size uh, history of Brazil from the a geography and history of yeah. Brazil from the 19th century, because there are some peculiarities of it which people may not know. First of all, it's extraordinarily large. Right. I mean, uh, also, the other thing I was interested in, I want to hear you talk about, is that uh, I and I had never read this that it was the largest slave holding country right. in the world. Yeah, in, it in the 19th century. Yeah, please explain all of right.
1: it. Right. And, yeah. and, well, I'll start with that. I mean, slavery ends late in Brazil. It ends in 1888, uh, and there's a steady importation of slaves finally cut off, you know, with the British in, you know, 1850, 1851. But, uh, you know, because of the U.S. Civil War and because of the ongoing growth of slavery in Brazil after um, slavery ends in the United States, that it, it, does have more people enslaved than any other nation in the world in the 19th century, which helps explain its, its massive Afro-Brazilian population. And, and there are new slaves coming in as, as late as, it's, it's a trickle after 1850, but, you know, through the 1840s, new slaves are being brought in. And the geographical notion of, um, emancipation is kind of the reverse of the United States. So it's the North emancipates before the South in Brazil, but that's because the North is poorer and its agriculture is in decline. So, uh, there's either emancipation or simply selling your slaves to wealthy coffee planters mm-hmm. in, in Rio and Jalapa. But the, the geographical question goes back is before the 19th century. The way the way I put it and gets back to talking about um, you know how this came out of teaching modern Latin America is if you think about Mexico, you know Cortez arrives from Cuba in 1519 on the shore of what's today Mexico founds the city of Veracruz, which is a major port to this day, burns his ships, right, tells his (laughs) men, we're here to stay, uh, and marches to the center of indigenous power, Tenochtitlan, which is Mexico City. And that sits physically in the middle of Mexico. And and so, you know, one of the great struggles in Mexican history is, you know, the relationship between the hinterland, whether that's, you know, Texas or Yucatan, and this capital that sits in the middle of the nation. In Brazil, the Portuguese, you know, are much more interested in Asia. Um, this notion that Cabral, who is the man who, you know, kind of stumbled upon Brazil in 1500, is simply trying to get further west to get faster around the dead parts of the trade winds in Africa to get Mm -hmm. to India. And so the Portuguese are very reactive and um, put in trading forts and then have more permanent settlements when the Dutch are in the northeast and the the French try to take what's today Rio and their whole questions of where the Spanish end and they begin. And so uh, colonial uh, chroniclers talked about the Portuguese hugging the coast like crabs, but they never went into the interior. And you can kind of, and they, you know, when they find things they want, whether it's rubber in the 19th century or gold and diamonds in the 17th and 18th century, they do make forays into the interior. But things are so limited that it's in 1960 that they open a new national capital uh... in the interior, Brazilia, because the capital had been Rio, which is a mm-hmm. port city on the Atlantic coast. And you know, the shape of Rio is in an airplane. I always, you know damn them for not putting it as a kind of formula 1 race car cuz that would have mm-hmm. been great right coverage of the book but you know the, the outline of the city is an airplane because Brazilians are you know rightfully obsessed with modern forms of communication mm-hmm. because they have a massive poorly connected country mm-hmm. and then they're just facts of geography so we talk about the Piedmont is smaller in Brazil than in the United States for example and if you kind of look at you know how the continent separated there's a large escarpment and so there are great cliffs between the kind of uh, plain in the interior and the small Piedmont. And so theres there wasn't even the opportunity for a lot of river traffic. There were a handful of rivers uh, in the kind of more developed part of Brazil from the colonial period that people used. But it wasn't like the United States where you could look at great lakes and rivers and think about canals.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, you
1: just didn't have that. So the whole geography kind of leading up to the 20th century is a very disconnected highly federated nation. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, I think Americans don't realize how lucky they are because our rivers flow in what we would consider the right direction and parallel to one another. (laughs) Because, like, for example, in in Russia and in Eurasia, they don't. They all flow in the wrong direction. And although they are parallel, they are uh, thousands of miles apart. There are no canals. Right. There cannot be canals. So right. we get this impression that everybody has uh, Mississippi River Valley, which is a really wonderful thing to have.
1: <laughs> right, or or that other countries were just screw-ups because they didn't think of putting in a canal. Yeah, exactly. You know? yeah. <laughs> like, well, there's a reason you could put in a canal.
0: Yeah, you know? that's exactly right. So um, the Brazilians decide uh, to uh, begin importing automobiles, and eventually the, the – um, the ford motor corporation and, and g m and these other uh, car companies uh, come to Brazil. Can you explain uh, how that happened? This is kind of an interesting story
1: yeah and they, and and they and they go all over the world uh what what they do is they 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 want to lower shipping costs, so they they make cars uh in Michigan and then they kind of take them apart um, i mean they, i guess they don 't completely put them together, but they 're doing most of the work in Michigan and they ship them as what they call completely knocked down units. Uh, and so they come in crates that are easier. And they, they Ford builds and GM later build um, uh, reassembly plants throughout the world. And I, I obviously know the ones about in Brazil, where they put in assembly lines where these cars are then re put together. So you don't have an assembly line where they're starting from scratch and building an engine, uh, but you do have an assembly line where they're mounting the engine and they're and they're doing all of these parts. And what was fascinating to read in the Brazilian press was that uh, there was no distinction made between a factory in Sao Paulo and a factory in, say, Dearborn, Mm -hmm. that they, that Brazilians considered um, these reassembly plans to be the kind of height of manufacturing sophistication. And in fact, Ford, and I think they did this in England as well, Ford took the factory in Sao Paulo and they took it apart and they sent it... To an auto show in Brazil, and this was the most popular part of the auto show: of Brazilians coming and marveling at uh, fellow Brazilians manufacturing what, in you know the 1920s, is the because this starts 1919, 1920, you know the most technologically sophisticated thing anyone's ever seen in Brazil. Mm-hmm. And there's great national pride. And again, this gets back to your question about slavery, right? There's great national pride that Brazilians are making cars. They're not slave labor, mm-hmm. simply cutting sugarcane or, you know, picking coffee or, 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 you know, or digging, you know, roads. They are doing sophisticated labor. Mm-hmm. And this is a sign that Brazil, you know, is, has a hope for its future and its population will be like the population of the United States and maybe even Western Europe.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: These um reassembly plants, though, they built cars not for... Uh, re-export, as is the case yeah. today in China. They're actually for internal consumption, right? That's right. Yeah. For inter-
1: yeah, that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. I see. Um, but, but they also do lead to some forward and backward linkages because, for example, what becomes much more – the car is the symbol of everything. Everyone wants a car. It's personal freedom. It's status. It's, you know, that you're middle class. But the thing that really transforms the society at first is, you know, the things are trucks and buses, because buses, you know, again, so much of the transportation is about moving coffee and other commodities. Buses allow you to move people to all different places, and certainly um, they allow for the growth of cities and trucks you know allow the rail links to be exploited that now you can do a lot more with those rail links and so there's there is there is the rise of uh, an industry that's customizing um, truck and bus bodies and that does become important later on when they when they you know have a more integrated auto industry in the 50s mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. I wanted to uh, go back to the automakers themselves, we have this notion, I have this notion, that um, I think I got from reading dependency theory. <laughs> Remember that? Remember dependency yeah, theory? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Andre Gunter Frank and these guys. Th- that somehow these foreign corporations muscled their way in. Uh, that's not the, the, the read that I got from uh, your book. It was rather they were, uh, they saw an opportunity and they were invited in, kind of enthusiastically invited in Absolutely. Uh, by the Brazilians. The Brazilians loved them. They loved Ford. And they, yeah. they were... Uh, they, they wanted more Ford, so maybe you can
1: talk a little bit about that. Yeah, and Ford, I mean, I, you know, I'm going to skip way ahead to the 50s. And what happens is Ford and GM in the 50s, when, when we can talk about this later, when the, when the government is sort of forcing the multinationals to build plants in Brazil, make a very sober economic analysis of the market and say, we'll build trucks and buses here, but we won't build cars. We don't think there's a market for cars. And, and and then um, Willys and, and, and Volkswagen become synonymous with the car. And, and it's a shame because sort of 30, 40 years of market dominance and the association, particularly of Ford, with automobility just goes down the drain. Mm-hmm. Uh, but beginning in the 1920s, I mean, it's it's sometimes hard. People who think this website tend to be historians, so it's not hard. Um, it's it's important to remember that Ford is a major world figure, mm-hmm. Um you know, and and I mean, you know, I read something. There's a book about Ford and anti-Semitism that argued, you know, if, if not for Ford's dissemination of the international Jew in all of his dealerships throughout the world, mm-hmm. you know, anti-Semitism might not have had as as much play mm-hmm. uh, as it does in the 30s. I don't know if that's true, but it's it's fascinating to think because he is all over the world with He was the Bill
0: Gates of his day.
1: Yeah, more. And, and, and his and his utterances mattered, mm-hmm. and and you know, and 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 he really goes on a charm offensive too. After I think. um, um, you know, his his uh, pacifism around World War One is rejected by so many Americans, you know, after after the U.S. enters the war. And and so Ford is a hero and he's seen as someone who can uh transform the society and Ford's own peculiar relationship to the agrarian sector. Uh, speaks volumes to this rising group of intellectuals and policymakers in Brazil in the 1920s who who openly call themselves modernists, and they refer to themselves as cultural cannibals. And what they say is that we're not going to embrace a kind of you know interior, so-called backward-looking Brazilian identity, but we also won't embrace the Europeanized, outward-looking coastal identity. We will become strong if we can combine these two things and bring coast and urban and rural and agricultural together and that the car is the great tool for that, and Ford is the great symbol of that. All this sounds um, so American, doesn't it? It's Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, he he gave us the tractor and the Model T with its high clearance so that, you know, it, it doesn't just deal with a bad road in Iowa. It deals with a bad road in Minas Gerais, yeah. Brazil. Yeah. And, and so Brazilians, you know, the kind of evidence that Brazilians – um, revered Ford, is how little nationalist ire was stirred up by the granting of the massive concessions for his rubber plantations in the Amazon. And that takes place in 2728, 1927-28. And there's some, you know, kind of anger about this, stoked in certain areas, but mostly people are kind of saying, well, maybe he can do something with the Amazon. You know, maybe, you know, it, it's got to be a source of wealth. Um, we just can't do it, but he's so powerful, and his good friend Firestone you know, they're so powerful, they'll be able to harness the wealth of the Amazon and then transform Brazil into a great nation. So there there is a lot of – there is almost no uh, opposition to Ford and GM. Uh-huh. Um, in the 1930s, 1930, 1930, 1945, there's a very nationalist dictator named Chetulio Vargas, yeah. and he works closely with these guys. Yeah. Uh, you know, they are seen as, as paying good wages, not exploiting the country, and they're not, right? They're not taking mineral wealth out. Right, they're not they're not sucking the oil out of the ground and profiting from it. They're bringing these machines and this technology that people want. Mm-hmm. So it does kind of undermine that notion of of uh, a kind of simple minded notion of how imperialism works.
0: Yeah, I, I I really think it does. And what occurred to me while I was reading the book is that you've really done a terrific job of looking at um, the transfer of capital internationally from the kind of other end of the telescope. We we see right. it from an American perspective and. Uh, and in the um, framework of our own politics. And so people on the left will say that these multinational corporations are going into third-world countries. We used to call them third-world countries, and they're exploiting laborers and so on and so forth. And I I think that if you look at it from the, uh, as I say, other end of the telescope, it looks very different. They're providing jobs. uh, They're providing order. They also – I mean, it's hard to remember, but there once was a time in which, (laughs) to put it in the most modern terms, that – uh, American goods were thought of like Japanese goods are today.
1: <laughs> people no, that's just... actually right, right. There's an old expression in Portuguese that I, I learned actually at a birthday party when someone's cutting a piece of cake, and you say how much, and the person says "Atéu made in USA" and "Até means until," and the "made in USA" is made in USA. That's on the that's on the knife, um, and, and so there's a sense that yes, it was American goods, but but I, I, you have to be careful with that because when the multinationals come in the 50s um they do invest a lot of money in brazil and 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 they continue to invest a tremendous amount of money in brazil and and the current president you know a, a labor leader former you know a worker in the auto sector uh is a proponent of, of them doing this that still doesn't mean that some of what we you know, all thought when we were, you know, maybe much more radical, isn't true. So when you go through, for example, the documents of Willie's Overland do Brazil, which is owned by Kaiser Industries, mm-hmm. it's all about getting as much money out of the country as possible. Now they're they're making money there, and they are making goods there, and they're employing people, but they're really trying to get around profit remittance limitations, mm-hmm. and they they do want as much of the money to come. Back to the United States as possible, um, but it's not, it, you know it's not rapacious. You know it's 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 just businessmen wanting to get their profits into the United States as quickly as possible, and it's complicated because they are investing and they are spending there, but they really want you know to you know put money in the shareholders' pockets in the United States.
0: It's interesting because there's a there's a kind of Parallel strain today with what economists and business people that I know say about uh, China, and, and and they say the same thing all the time. They say, in order for uh, all of us to prosper, the Chinese have to start to buy Chinese goods. Yeah. And I think four of these guys were saying, if, if we're going to make cars in Brazil, the Brazilians got to buy them.
1: And, right. And, and, and that makes perfect sense to me. Uh, and the Brazilians were on board with it. Absolutely. That's, that's the thing that I found, um, you know, kind of worrisome when I would read things and people would – Use the word Fordism when they really meant to say Taylorism. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. and you know Fordism is all about um, you know I, I Henry Ford will make a lot of money if more and more people can buy my car. <laughs> yeah. And and what's fascinating is that 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 Ford is a proponent of this and it's very appealing to Brazilians and I think it's it's on a ve- as you see in the book it's on a very limited scale. I mean income distribution is highly skewed for most of this period, but then it's Henry Kaiser in the fifties who's giving speeches throughout Brazil uh cuz he's going to have the first uh Willys which you know uh you know and was Willys Jeep in the United States uh the first fully integrated auto uh, manufacturer in Brazil and he explicitly says this that with high jobs comes high consumption and you know and this sort of stuff and and this is never a conversation in Brazil
2: yeah
1: and and it becomes one and and to me the great irony is there is a slow march towards this from the 50s uh but it's fairly slow It accelerates at different times but it's under the current President and his predecessor, his predecessor, by the way, Fernando and, and Henrique Cardoso, one of the writers of dependent development, <laughs> yeah, you know, right. dependency theory, yeah. um, you know, turned away from that as he became, you know, center, center right politician. But, uh, and, and Lula, the current president, that they, that, that car ownership is quite high in Brazil, yeah. um, by, by the standards of, of Latin America or the so-called developing world. So they finally are getting there. But one of the arguments that I make in the book is that, uh, consumerism becomes increasingly associated with citizenship. And that might be one of the other parallels you saw with the United States, yeah. that that there is this notion of, of, you know, and get back to your other question about slavery, that there was this narrative throughout Latin America. Oh, we'd love to have a democracy, but we're not ready for it. And we're not ready for it is code for, we have these massive populations of poor people who we don't trust, mm-hmm. right? We elites least yeah. don't trust. And what you see going on in Brazil is a sense of kind of, uh, um that auto workers become a trope of the the the, the working class being ready for democracy uh-huh. that we 're going to have factories that pay good wages and that 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 provide the literacy training that the schools have not it's because people never even went to school etc, and that that will then become the way that we will have a population that's invested in the status quo enough to give them the right to vote. Yeah, yeah.
0: No, it's very very interesting, and it, uh, I don't know, that sort of makes sense to me. (laughs) I don't know what that says about me, but that sort of makes sense. Another thing I was very interested in is how the, uh, how the various governments and the Vargas government and the government that followed uh, really kind of took their cues from uh, Ford and GM and VW and things like this in a couple of senses. uh, It struck me from your book that one of the things that the uh, auto executive said was, in addition to uh, Brazilians are going to have to buy cars if we're going to build them, is that uh, if Brazilians are going to buy cars, we're going to need to supply them with credit. And Brazil didn't have a banking system that was capable of doing that. And so the... Uh, auto companies stepped in there. And also roads is a big topic here because yeah. obviously if you want to have a car, you need to have roads. This is something the Soviet Union never figured out, I think. Um, right. And so the the auto companies got behind roads too. So they were sort of developing the entire infrastructure for a modern a kind of uh, automobility, as you call it.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. So the, the auto companies are you know, uh, surreptitiously funding the good roads movement in Brazil, um, and, and publicizing the need that they have to, you know, they have to build these roads. Um, uh, the, the auto industry inadvertently, um, promotes the idea of the development of, uh, the petroleum industry in Brazil. Uh, one of the great ironies of Brazil and oil is that Brazilians for years just assumed the Amazon had to be filled with oil because it it had to be there, right? It was just a massive space. And the Brazilians have recently discovered huge finds of oil, but it's all offshore, so it's sort of the anti-Amazon. Um, and then Vargas particularly, but also administrations that followed him, um, thought that one of the great symbols of industrialism was a steel industry. Mm-hmm. And steel is, you know, an important component in, in auto manufacturing back then. So so these things are all intertwined. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see. I'm having a hard time hearing you.
0: I'm sorry. I thought it was very interesting um, that the automobile companies were – they're really kind of far-sighted about it. I, I, I mean, I used to work in a corporation, so I understand they do all kinds of studies and things. So, uh, I, I guess um, I guess I shouldn't be surprised by that.
1: No, but, but I mean, if you look at them today, right, yeah. you sort of wonder what happened yeah, no. because they were that way. Yeah. yeah, they were very smart. Yeah, they were
0: know? really very smart. So, tell us a little bit about um, what happens during the uh, depression in Brazil, and then the rise of uh, Vargas and his um, and his
2: group.
1: Yeah, the depression is you know throughout Latin America is kind of interesting because as commodity producers, you know they all suffered you know horribly um, with the the price drops for commodities, you know with with the price deflation in in much of Western Europe and the United States, and so they they end up kind of inadvertently, and this is talked about in dependency theory, you know, deepening their their internal industrial production because they start making things for themselves and and um, you know there's a segment of sort of forward looking folk in Brazil, a lot of them are in the military. Uh, who say, you know, we can't just be an exporting nation. You know, we should we should have things here. And and Vargas is someone who wants to unify the nation and break down all this federalism. But he suffers uh from a civil war launched by Sao Paulo uh, that only that lasts less than a year. But th- we now have pretty good documents about the civil war and and lots of the generals, uh, from the federal army, because the Sao Paulo state militia is almost as big, uh, are saying, God, you know, if they had used their roads more and they'd been smarter about automobility, they, they might have actually been able to win or, you know, a stalemate and this kind of thing. And so one of the arguments in the book is that Vargas has to pull back from his centralizing, um, you know, physical centralizing, because when he comes in, he fires the governors of the states and puts in people he calls interventors and wants all authority to be in Rio. And Sao Paulo is a huge check on that. Mm-hmm. And so the argument in the book is that he then turns to more cultural, less invasive forms of nationalism. And so he promotes things like domestic tourism. Uh, and there's the the um, uh, the colonial mining capital of Uru Preto, which is in the state of Minas Gerais, becomes a tourist destination. And and the automobile club in Rio has built a road from a private group has built a road from Rio to the old uh, colonial um, or the imperial summer residence. in a place called Petrópolis, which is sort of on its way to Auto Preto. And there's a big promotion of um, auto-based tourism. Now, that's only going to apply to a, a narrow group of people. But the other thing that Vargas supports the growth of is auto racing. Mm-hmm. And one of the arguments, and you probably didn't know this before you read the book, but, you know, Brazil's produced a lot of auto racers. Um, uh, people, some people have heard of, like, Emerson Fittipaldi oh, and, yeah. uh, and Ayrton Senna, And this starts in the 20s and 30s. And, there's, you know, soccer is always going to be the most important sport. But auto racing, you know, there are Grand Prix's in Brazil that draw over a half million people. And the argument there is that this is part of the culture of the car, that you may not be able to own a car, but you can aspire to own a car. And you can certainly go witness driving and transform yourself by kind of thinking about it and being in that mentality. So that's part of the the, – and then he does very concrete things like help put in the steel industry and so forth that become – he creates the first national driving code – so state by state had their own, uh, you know, um, code, essentially. And and, and and it's in 1941 that we get a national driving code so that if you drive in the state of Seregipe, you know what the rules are in the state of Hugh and the and And that had not existed before. Mm-hmm. And so the argument in the book is that he doesn't really tie the country together as much as he provides the infrastructure for someone who comes after him in the 50s, a guy named Juscelino Kubitschek, to do that. Mm-hmm. And then soon after Kubitschek, we have a 21-year military dictatorship, which sort of forces through unification, yeah. uh, you know, literally.
0: Let's talk about Kubitschek because he's, he's a very interesting figure. Um, uh, Fifty years of progress in five hmm. How, how, how did how <laughs> I, I'm laughing because it reminds me of five year plans. Yeah. But oh, they, I was completed they, in four years. Um, <laughs> yeah. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah. Kubitschek is a fascinating figure. He was he was a, you know, by all accounts, a charismatic, um, you know, smart political leader. He like a lot of latin american elites uh a lot, a lot you know not a not a small number of latin american politicians is a medical doctor and he was a public health doctor and he he openly talked about diagnosing uh the problems and finding a scientific or technological or engineering fix or cure for the problem and he's ma- he's a very successful mayor of belo horizonte which is the capital of uh, his state minas gerais which is the second richest most powerful state and then he's the governor and he becomes president. And 50 years in progress, he says, you know, he's going to 50 years of progress in five is in one five-year presidential term, he's going to transform Brazil. And he succeeds in many ways. He builds Brasilia. Brasilia has been a dream of Brazilians since the colonial period. It's in the Constitution going way back. Uh, uh, And he says, I'm going to do it. No one believes him. And he does it. And and um, he is in the presidency when they inaugurate the city in, in 1960. Mm-hmm. Um, he also uses the power of the state to, to look at the multinational corporations and say, if you want to sell cars here, you know, a, a certain percentage, and it increases every year, of their content by weight must be Brazilian-made. Mm-hmm. And Brazil is rapidly becoming, just because of its size, uh, a, an important market for uh for auto companies mm-hmm. and Brazil is losing a tremendous amount of money in foreign exchange by importing cars. Yeah. And so we see uh Willys Overland which becomes Willys Overland do Brazil, um Volkswagen comes, uh and then a couple of um other European companies make deals and um and they have combined concerns and then Ford and GM put in massive truck and bus factories. Mm-hmm. And we do have You know, before the end of his term, uh, Kubitschek riding around in in a Volkswagen Beetle, which is known in Brazil as a Fusca, which really becomes the the kind of post-war symbol of a car, the way the the post-1920, kind of 1920, 1945 symbol of a car is a Model T. Mm -hmm. And the Fusca or, you know, VW Bug is… A Brazilian car. Does Fusca mean bug? What's Fusca mean? No, it does I mean it's <laughs> <What's> it mean? <laughs> no one knows. It's fascinating. And well hey, well, it's kind of one of those classic Latin American no one knows slash everybody knows, right? Yeah. So you get a million answers. The best answer, and I have it in a footnote, is that it's a horrible mispronunciation of Volkswagen. Um <laughs> and 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 other words and, and it just becomes shortened as Fusca. I thought that it meant like a bug yeah. and you know I couldn't find any bug with that name yeah, right. but it just it means VW bug at this point point. and then there's just all this Brazilian angst that the new modern bug is of course made in Pueblo Mexico yeah. I mean that's the only place they're made Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, 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 uh, Kubitschek is incredibly successful. And, and he is, he, you know, and he talks about this in his diaries and, and, and lots of documents that he really wants to physically transform Brazilians, uh, into middle class citizens. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then we can expand the franchise. I mean, it, 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 he really does believe that. And so Brasilia is built um, to kind of you know limit class distinctions and everyone's going to live in these buildings whether you're rich or poor and it doesn't really work out but it but it's 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 the ideology of it mm-hmm. and um, this advanced manufacturing and you, you mentioned five year plans I mean there are oh god I'm embarrassed I don't remember this I think there are thirty targets and <laughs> yeah, a lot of them desert. yeah and a lot of them read like something out of you know a Brezhnev speech you yeah. know we're going to increase you know cement production by such and such percent. And the, the the point that's interesting for me is that two of them um, aren't these classic industrial inputs or, you know, we're going to, you know, increase rail transportation or water transportation. You know, one is a consumer good, and that's the car. And the other is the so-called synthesis target, which is Brasilia. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, of course, once you have Brasilia, which is in the interior, you have to build roads that connect every state capital to Brasilia. So that's another huge portion of his... Uh, project is is road building and the integration of the nation, you know, based on truck, bus, and car travel.
0: I was going to ask, uh, could you drive to Brasilia when it was built from Sao Paulo or uh,
1: somewhere? You know, uh, wow, I think you could. I, I, I'm, I'm 99% <laughs> sure you could. I mean, that's because the reason I think is that one of the things they do to inaugurate it is they have, a, a, and again, these things do sound somewhat Soviet, they have the, the Caravan of National Integration, and um and to get back to the joke about made in usa in english on the side of brazilian made trucks and buses it says made in brazil yeah um so i think you could i mean you you know the people you know, two types of people went to brasilia um uh, people looking for work Uh, And so they often went on the back of a flatbed truck Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, people who work in Brasilia, who didn't want to live there, who work in Rio. And so they would often fly. Mm -hmm. Um, So the airport was one of the first things they had to get in. And and the, the classic complaint about Brasilia was for its first 10 or 15 years, you know, the, the the technocrats went back and forth to Rio and Sao Paulo. They didn't live there. Mm
0: -hmm. Whenever I think about these modernizing projects, uh, and, uh, you know, they are characteristic of many places in the 20th century, obviously, Uh, you know, industrial uh, politicians as industrialists pushing forward uh, platforms for uh, the creation of uh, factories and mass consumerism and things like this. Uh, I often think of fascism and communism. Uh, This may sound like a ridiculous question, but how did the Brazilians avoid or did they avoid fascism <laughs> and socialism as a, a kind of vehicles for, uh, pardon the pun, vehicles for uh, modernization?
1: <laughs> well, as an aside, when you write a book about cars, you know, you have to really police yourself because you can't, nothing is being yeah. made concrete. They're not driving towards modernity. I mean, all that stuff that just comes out, you have to take out, or it's just horribly cute. Yeah. Um, that's a great question. I mean, I think that there is a fascist movement in Brazil, the green shirts, uh... And and there are fascists uh... in the military and 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 throughout Latin America. There are lots. You know, when you teach this, it's kind of a really weird thing to say to your students. And it helps when you're Jewish because they assume you're not. You know, being pro-Nazi. But, <laughs> you know, to say you know before Hitler, you know, to a lot of Latin American countries, I mean, Mussolini was very appealing. Yeah. A- and 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 then you know. um... Even Franco, I mean, as 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 brutal as Franco was in the the Spanish Civil War, that to a conservative Latin American elite military man, you know, the kind of order he was seen as bringing to to Spain, you know, was appealing. And and what happens in Brazil is there's a horribly weak party structure. So so first and foremost, parties don't work in Brazil until, you you could argue, until the 1980s. Um, So that's part of it. Another part of it is uh, Vargas himself. Um, is accused of being a fascist, is accused of being a communist, he spends from 30 to 45, um, you know, getting rid of these guys. So when he makes a deal with Franklin Roosevelt to become an ally and the Brazilians send troops to fight in Italy uh, under Mark Clark and and big bases are put in in the Northeast and in in the Amazon to both protect the Panama Canal North and to help the invasion of North Africa, um, you know, one of the deals is, yes, I will limit the you know, the influence of the pro-German segment of the Brazilian military. Mm-hmm. So you've got that. The, the the Communist Party, and this is part of my critics of my first book, I mean, I, the Communist Party of Brazil is a disaster. It's a, it's a horribly run, incompetent thing. Um, in the late 20s, Moscow kind of throws out all the labor-oriented people and puts in a former military man, Luis Carlos Prestes, who runs the Communist Party almost till his death uh, in the 80s. and And they launch a... A coup attempt in 1935, and of course the British know about this. It's all been intercepted, all the, the telegraphs about it, the telegrams about it. And, and so Vargas jails press base and kills a lot of communists. So it, it was a very weak communist party uh, and a, a fairly weak fascist party. And part of it also is that elections don't have a lot of importance in Brazil until after the 64 to 85 dictatorship. I mean, a very narrow group of people gets to vote. Mm-hmm. And so just, there are a lot of reasons that um, that communism and, and, and fascism just don't, as movements, have a lot of power. I think they influence a lot of things. Uh, but the communists also spend all of their time complaining about foreign imperialism.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And as we were talking about earlier, you know, the foreign manufacturers often – were better employers than the Brazilian yeah. industrialists. Yeah, so. And so that didn't really resonate in in Sao Paulo. I think in other places where you had foreign mining concerns and that kind of thing, I think that did resonate because the, the foreigners were seen as, as, as you know, taking the wealth of the nation and that sort of mm-hmm. thing.
0: And another thing I was very interested in reading your book is uh, my, my impression of, uh, and it's totally a stereotype of uh, south of the border, let's put it that way while we're being stereotypical, uh, military dictatorships as being yeah. kind of not very progressive, uh, right-wing, yeah. full of torture squads and things like this. Yeah. this. This is not the impression that I got from the, uh, the military dictatorship that uh, took hold uh, after, I'm sorry, what was his name? Um, uh,
1: yeah, uh, Goulart is over sixty four. Yeah,
0: that in fact they did some reasonably progressive things, particularly vis-a-vis the automobile companies.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No. I mean, I, I mean, maybe, maybe I, I, I should have had you read the manuscript because, <laughs> because there's, you know, there's horrible stuff that they do. Uh, and, and in fact, there's a period in, you know, first of all, when they come in, uh, they really uh, clamp down on. Uh, you know, they're mo- they're more worried about. Uh, peasant organizing in the Northeast. And so that's incredibly violent. And there's a lot of murder and a lot of, uh, uh, torture there. Uh, torture's a little later. Uh, and, and they clamp down on labor organizing in the south of the country where the automobile factories are. The Brazilian military, I think the thing to do is to kind of juxtapose it with Chile and Argentina. It's just massive. It's just a physically huge thing and, and it has different wings. And, and and there's always been a kind of very right wing wing, uh that, that that, you know, was tied to this kind of pro German movement in the twenties I mean, excuse me, in the thirties and that kind of thing. And there was a much more moderate wing, which was known as the Sorbonne wing. Um that was, you know, well educated, um not Eager to take power, this sort of thing. Who, were, who was convinced by '64 that this was what they had to do, and we talk about the coup within the coup. And, and so, in the late '60s, the hardliners really take power after '68 when there's some wildcat strikes and student strikes, and that's when we have, you know, torture and, and, and really horrific stuff. And, and I think that Brazilians talk about this in ways that that are that are complicated because you don't have the wholesale murder. Uh, that you have in Chile under Pinochet and Argentina during the Dirty War, um, there are political murders. There's no question. But the Brazilians were a little bit more sophisticated in um, in torturing people and letting them live. And, and the idea that this will really terrorize people, if people know that you know, if you step out of line, this could happen to you. And how do you know it could happen to you? Because you know a guy you went to high school with or you know college told you it could happen because it happened to him. So there is there is a a segment of the military that's quite horrific. Uh, and there are accusations, and I, I, I do think I talk about this, there are accusations that some foreign auto company executives are tied up with some of the um, vigilante, uh, vigilante torture and intimidation squads. Mm-hmm. But what happens, what you're probably referring to, which is truly shocking actually, is later on, it's a 21-year military dictatorship. And by the mid-70s, there is a kind of growing sense of exhaustion in society. Um, with a regime that took all kinds of credit for economic growth during this period of the so-called economic miracle in the early 1970s. Well, when the oil shocks, because Brazil is now a very... You know, auto dependent society that's not producing oil. When the oil shocks come and the economy suffers, you know, the group that's been bragging about its brilliant technocratic management of the economy is now going to get the blame for it. Uh, and there's, you know, and, and you have Carter who's opposing the dictatorship. Um, we have the rise of different groups in civil society kind of standing up and, and questioning things. And this dictatorship is not totalitarian. I mean, there is a congress is open it's circumscribed but it's open and there are elections and there's an opposition group uh and there's more and more discontent bubbling up and in that milieu we have uh strikes led by auto workers you know some of which led by the current president uh, Lula uh and those strikes are Sanctified in a way by lots of different groups. Mm-hmm. So the International Monetary Fund and the World—I think it's more the World Bank—come in and say, actually, the strikers' claims of inflation in Brazil are more accurate than the Brazilian government's claims mm-hmm. um, because there's a corporatist labor system and and you have to go through the state and use state numbers on what inflation is. And foreigners are saying, no, actually, the workers are right and the state is wrong. Um, we have uh, uh, Ray Marshall, who's a professor. You know, he's gotten some sort of position at the LBJ school, he told me, uh, he was Carter's uh, Secretary of Labor, that he reports to Carter that these workers are just like the UAW. Mm-hmm. And we have foreign auto executives referring to Brazilian workers as being like the UAW, being like Ige Metall in Germany, mm-hmm. and police and even some army men, you know, some generals in 1978, 1980 saying these guys are not political. It's helped that they are opposed by this really wreck of a communist party. Mm -hmm. Um, They're opposed by the old populist labor leaders, and they are supported by the progressive Catholic church. Mm -hmm. So segments of the military that have been increasingly unhappy with what being in power for 21 years has done to their institution, uh, unhappy with the extremes of the hardliners, Start to speak up and say, actually, these guys are okay. Mm-hmm. And you know, my argument in the book is like, this is this is exactly what was in people's minds, uh, whether it was supporting Ford in the 20s or Kubischeck in the 50s. That eventually we would have uh, people who were consumers, and in fact, these auto workers owned cars, lived in homes. You know, they were you know something that we would recognize in the United States as the old-fashioned kind of m- middle-class, you know, unionized working-class person, and they you know, there are quotes from people general saying, you know, Brazil is now ready for a democracy because look at how these workers behave. And we have industrial relations people in the auto industry saying these guys weren't at all political. They just wanted to sign, you know, a contract for a good wage and they wouldn't strike and they wouldn't do this sort of stuff. In a way, they were very political, but they weren't talking about seizing the state. They were talking about participating in elections. And and the party that comes out of this, the workers' party, the PT, you know, has the presidency. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is a political agenda, but it's not the old communist one of seizing the state and using the state apparatus and this kind of stuff. It's, it's participating as an equal in society and raising up the average Brazilian. And in power, the PT, you know, at the end of the book, I talk about practices state Fordism. you know, that they that they are using um, tax revenue to pay children to stay in school, you know, and these sorts of things. You know, they're really trying to create... Um a more stable population you know, and, and try to chip away at the extreme poverty in Brazil.
0: yeah, this is interesting because you know in Europe uh, what well, this would be derisively called by people on the left trade unionism. It's uh-huh. a bad thing, you know. Right. Like, Lenin hated trade unionism. Um, I think even Hitler hated trade <laughs> unionism. Uh, and uh, in Brazil, it becomes kind of a, a, the fundament of, of really modern democratic politics, especially in the late 60s and 70s and after uh, uh, the, the PT comes to power. I mean, it, it's a... It just is interesting to me to see how they successfully negotiated this without some of the extremes. And I didn't mean to imply that there weren't extremes when the right right wing military dictatorships in power, but how, how they did. Uh, f- find their way around some sort of uh, titanic, violent social revolution. Right, um, I think right. And, and it's and, much to and, their and credit that they did this. I, I, right. I don't, I, I don't know the ins and outs of it, but I can only judge by the consequences, and they're not too
1: bad <laughs> compared right. to what we saw in other places. Right, and this speaks to this Brazilian myth of being different from the rest of Spanish America, from the rest of Latin America, which is Spanish american saying, you know, we we have this tradition of conciliation. We didn't have a violent. Um, independence movement, you know the way Mexico did and mm-hmm. that kind of stuff, and and it, these are myths. I mean, if you're the largest slaveholding society, you are by nature a very violent place. But the myths actually matter because you know people <laughs> buy into them. That we're not like those crazy Argentines. We're not going to murder everyone. Yeah, we'll torture some people, and that's bad. But you know we're not we're not as violent, and we're... and and the people buy into the myth and operate according
0: to that's it. It's hilarious. It's not hilarious, but it's just, it, it's so. Uh... It's so striking. More parallelisms, you know, we have this notion of American exceptionalism. We're not like anybody else.
1: <laughs> Maybe the
0: Brazilians. for the Brazilians. I think we're exactly like the Brazilians. I feel like after reading your book that I met a, a brother I didn't know I had. <laughs> so um, let's talk about the modern period in, in um, uh, 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 Lula and, and, and because he's a fitting kind of capstone for the book.
1: Well, you know, he he represents a lot of things to a lot of people. And I I, I end the book, you know, with this notion that all these intellectuals and, and modernists from, you know, early the 1910s, mostly the 1920s and 30s, who imagined um, the technological and spatial fix of automobility, you know, transforming the population so that we would have this kind of not quite pliant, but, you know, bought in. Majority that's consuming and and participating, all this. They at some level they'd be thrilled, but they would be shocked that it's a, you know a man from the working class who you know isn't educated you know since he left school at 14, who migrated from the northeast with his family as a child, that that he's president. You know that that that's the part that they wouldn't like, and 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 part of one of the arguments of the book is that modernity is all about surprises. You know that it's not this. You know, kind of Stalinoid or or Whiggish kind of steps of history that things are going in a lot of different directions, mm-hmm. and and at some level it's it's makes a lot of sense that Lula's president, and the other another level is really a wonderful surprise of Brazilian history. Um, but one of the things that I found fascinating is that um, good progressive intellectuals, you know, get mad that Lula isn't more left wing. <laughs> And, and those of us who study, you know, you're talking about trade unions, and those of us who study, and I, I met the guy in the in, in in you know the mid the mid to early 1980s. and He's a trade unionist. Yeah. So I mean, you know, he doesn't want to he doesn't want to run Ford. He just wants Ford to pay their workers well and produ- and be productive and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, he he is um, he makes a lot of sense in Brazilian history, but he makes a lot of sense for lots of parts of the world. Uh, but he, but he, but, like anything else, like Barack Obama, I mean he becomes a symbol for things he 's probably not yeah that 's exactly right
0: I mean i some people may know uh if they listen to this show i you met Lula, right i met right. i know I know Obama I used to play basketball with him a lot and uh oh, okay and and so I, I hear these people on the left, the, the sort of farther left, saying, you know, well, he's, you know, I, I'm very disappointed, and you know, I'm, it's great that a black guy got elected president, and it is a surprise. Um, I don't know, I don't find it that surprising, but the, uh, but I'm like, you're misreading this guy. You know, his right. his he was raised by Kansans. <laughs> <laughs> he even has a twang i was i'm from kansas so i like, i know exactly what this guy's thinking he's he's you know he's very moderate sensible uh you know kind of he's not a conservative guy but he's certainly uh you know he's to he, take it slow is what he's
1: about right take well, the everything funny thing slow. About Lula is, is that he ran for president a bunch of times and and, and i remember in the uh because i know i mean i've met him and you know he doesn't know i am i mean not met him a bunch of times but but uh, never played ball with him. Uh, and um, <laughs> but um, but I know some people pretty well who know him, and, and and so I'm always kind of drawn into this stuff. And and what's interesting to me is I remember he came to, gave a talk at Harvard Law School in oh God, I don't know when it was, you know, maybe the early to mid nineties. And he was more or less there to plead his case, you know, to Wall Street. Like, I'm not going to you know renege on the debt. I believe in you know responsibility and, and it was just fascinating to see his frustration. And if you rem- and I mentioned this a little bit in the epilogue to the book, if you remember when he's elected, the Bush administration refuses to send anyone of note <laughs> to his inaugural. I mean the largest nation in Latin America. <laughs> uh, they send the trade representative. And yeah. the only reason Brazilians did not loathe the Americans at this point is there was a woman whose name I forget, who was a very talented ambassador, American ambassador, and she was I think with her kids coming out of a supermarket and this film crew kind of jumped her and said, you know, why does America hate Lula? <laughs> and she looked, and in kind of flawless Portuguese, says, we love Lula. He's, a, he's an American-style self-made man from working class to the presidency. It was a brilliant answer. Yeah, right. But, you know, to, to you know, if you look at the Financial Times, if you look at the Wall Street Journal, I mean, if you look at the New York Times Sunday Magazine, I mean, Lula is this kind of Chavez-like figure to them before they knew who Chavez was. Yeah. And it turns out he's not. He's now yeah. the great bulwark against Chavez. Yeah,
0: exactly. I was going to say going to mention Chavez because, again, it's one of these cases where I, you know, Chavez, I don't know what to say about Chavez, but it is... I mean, it, it speaks. I, I think it speaks extraordinarily well of the Brazilians and the Brazilian ruling class, if there is such a thing, that they, you know, that, that Lula is president. I, I you know, seen, I'm looking at a picture of him right now on the web, and he looks like everybody's favorite uncle. That's right. <laughs> and,
1: you know, a, a really good friend of mine, um, who, who's a former colleague at Rice, a guy named uh, Peter Carl Caldwell. He put it, and he's a German historian, right? So he had perfect clarity on this. He said, he said, look, he says Chavez is a military man. Blue is a labor leader. Yeah, you know, like why should we be surprised that one is a dictator and the other's a Democrat? Yeah, that's a very good point. That's... And I, th- I think that was like the, the outsider having kind of the perfect, you know, view of it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, I think that I think that's exactly right. And also, you know, I mean, again, to, to draw the parallel to Obama, if you look at the way he came up, his background and what he did, uh, he's not, um, he's not a child of the left, and he's not a black politician, if you know what I mean. He doesn't. Right. That that wasn't his deal. That's right. Not, that's not how he got to where he is. And. uh... So it's it's hardly surprising that he's doing the things that he's doing. I mean, he pretty much does what he said he was going to do. Um, he just does it slower than people like it. But uh, Lula is a is a pretty fascinating f- figure, and and I guess I kind of admire the guy quite quite a bit. Um,
1: and, and so does so, Obama. Obama always talks whenever he's with Lula. He always talks about being you know the second most popular guy in the room, which is you know, <laughs> Obama's ego that he assumes he's number two. But uh. <laughs> that's very funny. Well, um, so what percentage of Brazilians own cars today? Oh God, great question. I'd have to look it up. Uh, <laughs> classic historian, right? Yeah, Brain freeze on the current events. Yeah. You know, um, I'll give you a really bad answer. That's okay. that's actually an okay answer. You know, a, a higher percentage than ever before,
2: yeah.
1: uh, and 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 it's steadily growing. Um, it, it it could be approaching, if you're not to uh, people, but families. I mean, it could be approaching the 30 or 40 percent level. Uh-huh. And what, um, what what kind of cars do they like? Well, they really like they like stylish cars. Brazilians like stylish things, um, you know. So, but but Japanese cars, which are now being manufactured there to some extent, Japanese cars are um, considered it's very cheap. Uh-huh. So so, if you drive a, a, a Honda Accord, and you mention this to a Brazilian, they'll think very highly of you. Uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, so it's it's kind of neat. But you know, but the thing about about car ownership that I found doing the book is that no place ever compared to the United States. Yeah. And there's a great story I'll tell quickly, but th- that you you may know uh, about, the, and I don't think it's apocryphal. I think it's true that Stalin, in trying to kind of you know talk down the United States decided that he was going to show American movies that put America in a bad light and showed Grapes of Wrath. Mm-hmm. Do you know the story? No, I don't. Uh, and and they kind of did polling with people afterwards and they said, What do you think of the United States? And they said, What a great country. <laughs> you know, Grapes of Wrath. Right? Yeah. And these pollers said, well, How do you mean great country? He goes, Well the Jodes, they were they were so poor. And they said, Yeah, but they had their own truck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's true. I mean, you know, poor people in the United States oftentimes, you know, have a car. I mean it's part of it's it's the sad legacy of needing a car. But So, so no place has ever compared in terms of you know cars per person with the United States. Mm -hmm. But Brazil is it's steadily growing, and I I I wouldn't be surprised if it. Oh God, don't hold me to it. uh, If if it's thirty or forty percent of families Mm -hmm. would have a car now. So how, how are the roads in Brazil now? Oh, they're pretty awful. Um, in the state of Sao Paulo, uh, they're better because it's a richer state. Same with Minas Gerais. But what I always tell people is it's a perfect expression of politics. I mean, every politician wants to get his picture taken uh, with the opening of a road, but very few people get their picture taken when they repair a road. And <laughs> and, and Brazil has real problems with its tax structure and, and how it collects taxes on whom. So um, roads are in pretty dismal dismal shape. And, and um, yeah, they're just bad. Yeah,
0: before, but they're everywhere now. They're before bad. we've taken a, a lot of your time, but I want to I want to I want you to discuss something that I think uh, every American thinks they know about Brazil, but I don't know if they do. I'm just going to sort of uh, t- take the opportunity because you're the only expert on Brazil that I think I've ever talked to. Okay. Uh, Americans have this notion that somehow uh, there's no racism in Brazil. That somehow uh, yeah. everybody marries everybody, and and that yeah. they just it's a big love fest between the races. Right.
1: Uh, yeah. I I gotta think this is false. Yeah, you know, I think it is false, and I think that it's, it, it all comes down to these comparisons, and, you know, and Degler wrote a famous book about it, and you can look at Frank Tannenbaum. I mean, there's been you know fascinating stuff. Um, uh, in fact, a former colleague of yours who passed away, Charles Hale, wrote a wonderful piece about Frank Tannenbaum and how he talked about race in, in the Americas. I, I think that... I think the issue is to not think about it like an American. You know, I'm sure that when you're in Russia and you're doing your research, I mean, at a certain point, you know, you're just speaking Russian and you're starting to think like a Russian, you know. And, and when I'm in Brazil, that, that, that happens to me. What's fascinating, my, my, my mentor, Tom Skidmore, who wrote a very good book on this uh, called Black to White, he wrote a piece in, the, uh, I think, the Journal do Brasil, which is, you know, one of the major newspapers out of Rio. And we talked about the fact that Nelson Mandela came to Rio uh, soon after becoming president of South Africa, and said, "What we must do in South Africa is is, is embrace what you have here in Brazil." So, mm-hmm. so that same reading of the absence of racial conflict. Mm-hmm. And about a month later, an Afro-Brazilian woman in the PT running for governor um, gave a speech in which she denounced denounced uh what she called a parchedi brasileira brazilian apartheid so from a brazilian point of view they were too much like south africa and not <laughs> enough like what what they thought
2: uh, uh,
1: brazil you know you know, it's I, I start to pause and stutter. It, it it's just so different in the United States mm-hmm. and there is a belief and a myth of racial democracy and it smooths some things over. Mm-hmm. But you know, they have an affirmative action law that states very clearly that the affirmative action law is to fight racism. Mm-hmm. So there is now an admission in Brazil that no, we do have problems and, mm-hmm. and we, we don't have you know, we don't have a black president and we don't have a lot of black business leaders. Mm-hmm. And there's all kinds of mythology about, you know, like say money whiteness. So Pele, who was a very dark skinned man, yeah. um, you know, kind of sometimes will derisively refer to as these black people because he doesn't see himself as black because mm-hmm. he is in elite. So it's 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 different from the United States and there was obviously miscegenation and, and some of it was obviously just, you know, slaveholders raping slaves. Yeah. Um but but miscegenation was never illegal and it became at least ideologically Um, a part of Brazil Mm -hmm. and so you do have like one of the greatest most revered writers in Brazilian history um, Machado de Assis is is a mulatto from the 19th century Mm -hmm. so there's it's it's the cop-out answer that parents and historians give is it's complicated yeah so it's but it is
0: complicated things yeah. are, I like to say to especially to uh, to publishers who want you to write uh, your book and make it really simple. I just say to them, things are as complicated as they are, not right. as you would imagine them to be and mm-hmm. uh, and, and this is complicated i 'm reminded of a story that a fellow who wrote a, a book about Oh, um, uh, Marcus, you know Marcus Garvey. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and Marcus Garvey, uh, he goes and takes a tour of the. He'd never been any place but the islands and uh, where he was raised. He was raised in the Caribbean, and then he goes to uh, uh, Boston, where he visits the, double, the uh, NAACP, and he can't find a black person at the NAACP. And then he takes a tour, <laughs> and then he takes a tour of the South, and he can't believe what he sees. He 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 just is absolutely gobsmacked by the deference which the majority black population shows the minority white population because the, in the islands. As racist as they were, they just didn't right. do that, and uh, so he just read it in an entirely different way yeah. than an American would. Just, yeah. he just he really couldn't believe the difference that the black people showed the white people in, in, the,
1: in the well, South. A great Brazilian sociologist, uh, who's a very complicated person, speaking you know, of complicated, uh, Gilberto Freire. When I teach him, I always point out to my students he was white and he was elite, and he grew up in the northeast of Brazil, and then in around 1910, he went to college in the United States, and then he got his PhD in the United States, and they taught in the United States. And, and, and during the period of Jim Crow segregation, the order of where he was was Baylor, so he's in Waco, Texas. Mm-hmm. From Baylor, he goes to get his PhD at Columbia, so he's now in Harlem, mm-hmm. right? and I've never read anything about this but then he teaches at Stanford where he must have been like where are the black people you yeah, know, right. <laughs> you know. Right. and he's one of the people who really promotes this idea that Brazil is so much better than yeah. the United States but you can understand after being in Waco yeah. Yeah. and then you know in Harlem that yeah. that's not an unreasonable thing no, to think no not at all that's very, it's, yeah.
0: It's fascinating yeah all these yeah. things are uh, as Einstein would say relative that was a terrible <laughs> joke I shouldn't make those jokes anyway Joel we have taken up a huge amount of your time as I said I want to thank you very much for being on the show yeah. the book is Autos and Progress the Brazilian search for modernity i read it and i liked it and i think that everybody should read it joel thank you very much great thank you marshall okay take care now you too you've been listening to an interview with joel wolf about his new book autos in progress brazilian search for modernity i'm marshall poe the host of new books in history i hope you have a great week